is Boom Goddess Radio, igniting inspiration in primetime women. We are Jennifer Davis Page, B.B. Peters, and Dr. Andrea Gould. So we're going to break it up a little bit today, and each one of us is going to have 15 minutes with you, led by her individual curiosity about so much. And we did start out thinking that this was going to be a talk about dinner for one, which really is the one in herself goddess, if we want to tie it into the book. So we're going to start with B.B. Peters. Take it away, B.B. So, dear Ratlisha, welcome to Boom Goddess and welcome to Tucson. Before we get to the traveling and dining alone questions and fears, uh, can you speak a little bit about your book that is currently making all the bestseller lists? How exciting is this path? <laughs> very, very much so and unexpected. Um, the book is, again, I'm Her Daughter, The Healing Path to Woman's Power, and it's a big book. It's 400 pages. It's not... Um, what you would consider light reading. Um, it's about, you know, issues with our mothers, issues with women, and issues with ourselves. And as as a woman who's healed her own personal mother issues, I've since learned and been able to see the mother wound in the culture and in the world. And that's where this book starts to go. And I can't think of a more timely uh, moment in our, in our history um, for this to come up. It's kind of shocking, actually. So I guess that's why the book has shot up the charts. People are ready for this topic. There are so many moments, not only in the book, right, but in your life. And um, just as you embarked on a path just now for uh, promoting and talking about your best uh, selling book, last year you traveled solo to France. You were right there when a large terrorist truck slammed through a crowd celebrating Bastille Day in the southern city of Nice, killing at least 84 people. Mm -hmm. Describe your intention for this trip mm -hmm. and give us a sense of the emotions running among the locals and within yourself during all that time. Oh my gosh. Well, it was actually pretty interesting. First of all, this was a pilgrimage for me. It was it was a new start. I uh, am a mom with grown children, and as my children left, you know, the home in the last year or two, I realized I needed to figure out who I was again. I was very invested in being a very present mom, conscious mom, as much as possible, anyway. And when they were gone, I I sort of wondered who am I now. And in my uh, wonderings about that, I I was told very clearly, you need to go somewhere you've never been before. You need to go face some fears and figure out who you are again, remind yourself what you're made of. And number one, I'd never been to Europe. I've, uh, I've traveled this country extensively, but never been to Europe. I do not speak French. And I've never felt a draw to France, to tell you the truth. I didn't, ha I would much rather go to Scotland or, you know, Mongolia, but there was, uh, for some reason it had to be France. And then it was revealed to me that it was a Black Madonna pilgrimage. It was to go and seek the image of the, the mother, the face of the mother that had been buried in the culture. Six weeks by myself in France, traveling from coast to coast on the southern half of the country. And um, I was an hour away from the terrorist attack in Nice, uh, in Montpellier, at the start of the, um, the Tour de France. 
And it was interesting because that morning when I got up, I was intending to go and, and be in the crowd to watch the, the race take off because they were, you know, starting there. It was, it was the Montpellier stage. I heard very clearly inside, don't be part of any crowd today. Don't, you know, just stay away. And I was like, okay, well, shoot. <laughs> I really did want to see, but then later found out, you know, later on that night was, was the terrorist attack. The feeling that I had was, you know, first of all, thankful that I wasn't there in the actual place, in the actual sitting in the crowd. But I felt very um, sad for the French people, and I expressed to one of them, you know, to the woman at the hotel desk, you know, I'm so sorry. And she looked at me in this really offended way, and said, I don't know what you're talking about. We we do not let these things stop us. We we this is just what happens and this is life and so we move on. And I was really shocked by that at first, but found it to be consistent all over France for the rest of my time there, because this happened within days of my getting there. Over the six weeks that French people said consistently, we will not let anything like this stop us from living our lives. It happened, it's awful, and we're angry, but move on. Oh, wow. So <laughs> did you begin this ambitious journey uh, with a certain plan in mind, or were you adding elements and pieces to it as you went along? That's a great question. I've been asked that a lot. Um, I wanted to have a plan ahead of time because that would have made me feel a lot better. I had a lot of anxiety about going by myself to a country where I didn't speak the language I'd never been in before. Um, however, because of the way I live my life, I, I listen for the synchronicity. I feel where the, the, the river flows, you know, and try to keep myself in it as much as possible. And so I had a couple of plans in terms of a hotel, you know, a, a place that I knew I would be able to stay in a city. But in terms of the first couple of days, it was wherever I was guided, um, wherever I felt, whether that guidance came through someone, you know, person inviting me to come and stay at their home, or whether it was a feeling in my morning meditation that I needed to go in a certain direction or to move on to another location. And so I, I partnered collective intelligence, if you would like to say, to, to guide the trip. And I was taken to the most incredible places and had the craziest mystical adventures as a result of just giving over to that. And when you said that you were uh, taken to those places mm -hmm. by the French people, by your own internal spirit, how were you taken? By my own internal spirit and then also by the French people that I was guided to connect with one way or another or who were put in front of my path. For example, there was a day that I wanted to go find a Black Madonna that was in a village north of Montpellier. The bus stations for a person who doesn't speak French, it's very confusing. And there are all these timetables and all these words. And you're like, what? <laughs> you know, I have no idea how to find this bus. And so I was standing there a good 45 minutes at least and about to give up on my, on my adventure for the day. And this very sweet fellow came and stood next to me. And he was sort of looking at the schedule. And he saw my face, I guess, or felt my desperation. I think I was sweating, you know, <laughs> trying to figure this out. And he said, can I help you in some way? And I said, oh, my gosh, do you speak French? Or English, he said, yes. <clears throat> and so he wound up becoming my angel for the day. He, um, he took me to the village where I wanted to go. He went with me to find the Black Madonnas in the village. It wasn't his plan to do that today, on that day, but he actually um, he became my guardian for the day and took me around to places I never would have found otherwise. Just this beautiful young man named Etienne. I think there are some <laughs> photos of him on your yes, Facebook page are. as there well. Uh -huh. 
Um, so did your confidence build up during the length of the trip as you became a little more confident about things? How did that work for you? In general, in general, yes. Um, I went there with this sort of preconceived idea that I think Americans seem to be fed about the French, which is that the French are rude, and if you're an American, they, they don't like you. And that made me more nervous than anything, that I would be rejected by, by the native people of the country. However, as I found out, the French people were very kind and very helpful. And of course, I was in the south of France. They say in the north around Paris that it, it may be a little more true, you know, this idea of the French people not liking Americans very much. <laughs> but I don't know that because I wasn't there. In the south, people were very kind, were very willing to help me. Even if they didn't speak any English at all, somehow we understood each other. I had whole conversations. I was speaking English and they were speaking French. And we, somehow we understood each other. And the lesson was willingness. You know, if, if you're willing to connect with somebody, you will figure out a way to communicate, you will figure out a way to understand each other. And so if someone was open-hearted and willing, then it went fine. And that, over time, eased my anxiety quite a bit. What a marvelous sentiment to have mm -hmm. developed and grown into, to know that that openness and open heart will uh, leads you to certain places, right? Exactly. I remember a conversation in particular in a town called Obanya. Um, they, it's a, a at the foothills of a mountain range near Marseille. And I was looking in this tree because there was a cicada, very loud. I was just looking up in a tree and out of nowhere, I, this may have been another angel, I don't know. Somehow this, this very ancient Frenchman shows up, materializes next to me. And I had, didn't hear, I don't know where he came from. I, I, was, I had full view of my entire surroundings. I don't know how he got there. And he, he looked at me with this smile and this, this knowing in his face. And he pointed, you know, to the cicada and started speaking in French and started telling this story and smiling. And his eyes were smiling. And he was just, you know, sharing this story with me. And, and I said, je ne peux pas français, je suis désolé, you know, which is the, all the French I could muster to figure out was, I'm sorry, I don't speak French. <laughs> he didn't care. He just kept on talking and, and so I, I smiled and said my words in English, and he said his words in French, and we had the most touching interaction about the cicada. And then he went on his way. And I was just like, I just feel like I just got a hug from this guy. <laughs> you know, it's just amazing. So it sounds to us like you have uh, mastered this solo travel idea. Tell us what are some of the things you've learned about yourself from doing these solo mm. trips? Well, you know, like I mentioned, I've been traveling this country since I was really young. In fact, I started doing vision quests by myself across country, you know, when I was in my 20s. And in fact, according to my, my mother, my first sentence was, I want to go on a trip. So um, I've been traveling for a long time by myself, and it's okay. I love it. I actually really enjoy it. I like the time alone. I like the time to think. I really feel and hear my own connection to spirit, you know, as a result of my time traveling alone. However, this was different. This was taking myself into a whole, a whole other level of, of risk, you know, for me, for me. Um, and so I learned that I actually am stronger even than I thought I was and, um, learned that my, um, my desire to, to love people and to learn about them and to connect with them paves the way, unless they're just not interested at all. I only had two French people who were a little bit rude, 
just were not going there. The, the, everybody else just wanted to just connect deeply. So that was good. Uh, that that's a skill, and that's a feminine skill. Skill of relationship and connection and empathy and bringing bringing hearts together. Well, I would like to now uh, invite uh, Jennifer to join us okay. to ask you more, even more uh, specific questions about dining alone and traveling alone. So we're very happy to have Jennifer join us. Misha, it's it's. I am just thrilled to be had the opportunity to sit and talk with you, but I and and find out more about the idea of dining alone. Now I had been traveling the world for a long time, never by myself, and I have never called a restaurant and made reservations, gotten dressed and gone down and or gotten a table. I have never done that. Mm-hmm. That takes, for me, it takes a certain kind of bravery. Mm-hmm. Tell me how you felt the first time you did it, because um, you're a seasoned traveler now. So if you remember the first time you actually called, made a reservation, got dressed for dinner, and dined alone. Tell, tell, okay. tell us about that. That's a fair question. In the beginning, a long time ago, I remember feeling a little bashful, um, as if people were looking at me. Or something, and of course, when you walk in the restaurant, they always say, "Oh, only one." <laughs> you know, <laughs> when you go in, it's like as if so. There's something wrong with yes, that. Yes, you know, that being by yourself is like, "Oh, you poor thing," only all by yourself. Um, and and that annoyed me, of course, because I just get annoyed when people make an assumption, you know, in general. But I remember feeling a little bit um, like I needed to perform or act a certain way because I was by myself and because people were looking. But they weren't, of course. Nobody was looking. I mean, who cares anyway? And over time, what I realized, and I remember having this conversation with myself, I wanted to feel like I was in my own best company. Oh, that's excellent. Mm -hmm. And that if I could do that, you know, in my work, and I could do that in my my car, you know, driving around, or if I could um, do it when I was out walking or hiking in the mountains, or that I could do it having a meal. Did you find that Americans versus Europeans were more open to the idea of of an unaccompanied woman yes. dining alone? Actually, now that you say that, yeah, absolutely, I do. I did find that to be true. There was never the, you know, the look of oh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> only one. Um, no, it was in fact the the way that women carry themselves in France is quite different than we carry ourselves here. There is no apology in the way they walk or the way they speak or the way they look directly at you. Um, in fact, I witnessed several women giving men on the sidewalk good talkings to and holding their own. <laughs> so. Did you, do you generally like to dine in, the, in your hotel when you're away, or do you go out and venture out into the street and meet people and, 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 and venture out into new restaurants, I, different restaurants? I, I figured this is what I... My fear wanted me to to dine inside my room, room service, you (laughs) know. Um, And I did a couple of times when I felt particularly vulnerable. Like after the terrorist attack, um, there was a night that I just, I was overcome just with my anxiety about being away from my husband. And um, so I had the most amazing soup of my life. I can't remember the taste of it. But anyway, but most of the time, no. I wanted to go, I mean, I came all this way. I'm going to all this trouble to be here. Um, I'm here to find out who I am. And so I'm going to go and find something new and different to eat. And uh, I would just walk. If I tried to plan it ahead of time, inevitably, something would be, something wouldn't go right. Like the restaurant would be closed. 
you know, uncharacteristically or uh, I would meet someone and, and they'd say, oh my gosh, well, let me tell you where the best place to go get, you know, seafood is, you know, it's over here. And oh, great. You know, so um, it required pushing myself though. It's not all the time, but sometimes I needed to kind of talk myself down, you know, from my thoughts that, oh, I'm scared or, oh, I'm alone or, oh, I'm, None of that was true. None well, of that was even an issue. You let's know? let's talk Tuesday night versus Saturday night mm-hmm. for dinner. Okay. Did you find that when you walked into the restaurant did on Tuesday or Wednesday, did they give you a good table when you're dining alone or did they stick you in a corner somewhere? In France I got great tables. Like corner table looking out over the sea kind of tables. In the U.S., I have been given the cruddiest, (laughs) sorry, tables because I was alone. In fact, uh, there was a restaurant in Virginia that I went into and the woman said, you know, I I can't seat you. You're by yourself. You're going to have to, you know, get a seat at the bar. And I was like, excuse me, no, I'd like a table. And she put me at a table right by the front door where I was in this constant, Uh you know, Mm -hmm. flow of traffic. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I talked with the manager after that meal and said, you know, you may not be alert to this, but this is what happened. And as a woman who travels alone a lot and as a woman who writes, you know, I'm a journalist and I write in my books about these kinds of experiences, you might consider that it actually is a good industry to cater to, you know, women traveling by themselves are doing it more and more right now. And um, you might consider treating them a little bit better. Oh, let's go back to Saturday night when, the, oh. when generally when restaurants are very crowded with, and date night, for example, and you walk in on a Saturday night. Europe, the, the United States, did they treat you any differently because they're crowded or because did they treat you any differently? I don't recall ever feeling like I was being treated differently because I was a woman alone on a weekend night uh, in France. No, that's wonderful. What about the States? Same same kind of reception on date night? I, you know, I, I truly don't remember, to be honest with you. I've, I've just traveled so much in the States. I don't recall whether it was a Saturday night or, you okay. know, a weeknight. But mm-hmm. just, but there is, you know, that, that sort of thing in general of, you know, oh, you're by yourself. Well, let me shove you over here in the corner. I, <laughs> I, so. have, I have spoken with several di- uh, waiters mm-hmm. and, and waitresses before meeting with you today to find oh. out how they felt about that. And in uh, this particular restaurant, people dining alone is not uncommon. Mm-hmm. Um, a man, they have a regular guest who, who's, a, who's a gentleman that comes in almost five nights a week, mm. and he dines alone, and they and, and women as well mm-hmm. dine alone, and so it's not unusual mm-hmm. in so this restaurant, which is which is wonderful because maybe the restaurant business needs to get accustomed to. Um, unaccompanied women coming into their restaurant and dining. Well, and there's an opportunity there, twofold. One for the wait person and the other for the the solo woman diner. I find that when I'm sitting alone and having a meal, I am so much more present to my surroundings and to the flavors of the food and, you know, listening to conversation and watching people. I just, I'm so engaged. All of my senses are so much more engaged than if I were having conversation with someone over dinner, which can be, I mean, it's lovely to have conversation with someone over dinner, but it can be a little distracting too. Um, So the experience of dining alone has been very rich in that regard for me. And for a weight person, as a former weight person back in the day, put myself through school, you can really form an interesting bond with a solo diner and have amazing conversation and um, really get to know one another. And of course, you know, a solo diner who's taken well, good care of will tip very well. Have you ever had the experience of another person dining alone 
inviting you to join them at their table. Yes, I have actually. In fact, that happened one time in France. And I took them up on it because it seemed like the, you know, interesting and polite thing to do. And since I was saying yes to, to change and being open to risk and that sort of thing. And it was actually very, uh, it was very interesting. I've never, ha- actually, not that the, I'm thinking about it, I've never had a bad experience. It's one, was, that a man, invitation. was that a man or a woman it that was, invited It was a you? man in France. All right. Yeah. Don't tell my husband. <laughs> he was eating oysters, too, now that I think. <laughs> hmm. I wonder if he had any designs on me. I don't know. Oh, well, as, you know, um, that <laughs> was worked out that, fine. You had a wonderful conversation we and did. a great dinner, and you've met a new person. I did. Yeah, that, I did. I mean, you know, we didn't keep in touch or anything, but it was just kind of one of those nice moments, you know. So when you're not, when you're not being invited to another table, do you read? Do you pull out your phone? Do you do your internet? Do you bring a book? What do you do? Or do you just look around the room and people, I, people I, watch? I really engage with my senses. I, I, I feel like eating while reading or looking at my phone, I, that I'm cheapening my own experience, that it's distracting, another distraction. And I, I really just look and listen and taste and absorb color and sound and really enjoy the environment. It, it's a heightened, it's almost a spiritual experience, frankly, you know, getting into that, that present estate. It's, it's very enriching. Obviously you, you would recommend to other women to try the experience, I right? I think so. Yes, I, I would. I think we should all try the experience. I mean, just making a, re- not, not just going someplace casual, but just making a reservation, getting dressed for dinner and going and sitting and dining alone. You know, um, you know who Queen Latifah is. Yes, She's absolutely. one of my heroines. Yes. I love her so much. She said something years ago that I heard is probably 20, 20 or twenty five years ago. She said that she, if she was ever going to get married, she would marry herself first. Oh. <laughs> and she even at that time was wearing a ring on her on her wedding finger, on her marriage finger, to signify that she had decided she was going to marry herself. You know, and that she was worth it. And I really liked that idea. You know, that we can be perfectly happy and perfectly at peace and enjoy our own company. And if we don't, then to to strive to do that. Well, I think for all the ladies that are listening, we should take you up on it and just enjoy (laughs) that experience and see how absolutely marvelous it can be. Thank you so much for sharing that end of this interview with us. Thank you. And now, yet for another perspective, we've got our other goddess, Dr. Andrea Gould, who's going to fire off some interesting questions to you. The question of how it feels to have set what sounds like an outlandish goal of how many women? 13 million. In how much time? In a year. (laughs) So how does that feel within you as... Did you get a burst of energy? How did 13 million come to you? Well, I love the number 13. The The number 13 is associated with bad luck, and it's actually a feminine number. It's associated with the divine feminine, and I decided to take that back. And I really actually, 13 women show up in things that I do all the time. So, you know, so, so often 13 this, 13 that. And, it's, and this actually ties into why the Black Madonna, by the way. You know, going to France and having a quest for Black Madonnas I love to uncover what's been buried. I love to dig and find the truth of a situation. And the black Madonnas are the Madonnas that predated the Madonnas that we see now. The black Madonna is medieval. It's um, made of stone, volcanic rock, or dark wood. Sometimes they're even painted dark. 
And their features are much more Middle Eastern, wider noses, wider cheekbones, more of a moon face, dark hair. But the thing that makes them so different, you know that the modern Madonna has her hands in a prayer and her face is sort of up looking to the heavens or she's sort of looking down like this in a very demure way. The black Madonna is looking right at you. Eyeball to eyeball. Her head, you know, up. Her posture erect. There is no question that she is in her power. And so it's interesting to me to, in this quest of, you know, digging, you know, and trying to find what's what's been buried, what's been smoothed over, you know, that that would be the task that was given to me as a woman who was trying to remember who she was. I love the use of the word quest. Mm-hmm. I love the use of the inquiry process. Mm-hmm. And you have such respect mm-hmm. for the process I do. of asking questions yeah. and giving shape to your life on your own terms. Thank you. <laughs> That's well said. I'm going to have to remember that. <laughs> I don't remember what I said, <laughs> but I do. I I do see you that way. Thank you. You know, I appreciate and that. and that's really modeling the very core mm-hmm. of what I am, her daughter. Yeah, is it about. Is. It is. It's it's really about owning who we are from the inside out, unapologetically. Doing a great job. Thank you. Thank you. Much. So, can you share with us a bit, Leisha? about the link between your own coming of age and finding the divine feminine within and now what you're prepared to share, give, shed light on for other women? This is a multi-layered question requiring a multi-layered answer. I have been seeking the face of the feminine divine since I can remember. My early days going to a Christian preschool and being told at four, age of four, I was going to hell because I was having conversations with God, put me on a path into the woods, you know, into the wild, away from the church, away from any kind of dogma or contained categorical spirituality. I I was faced in that moment with the decision to honor my own experience or do what my elders and authority figures wanted me to do, which was to disown my experience. And for whatever reason, probably because I'm very stubborn, I decided to own my experience. And over the years, I have found faces of the feminine divine in every culture, every era, beautiful, whole, unblemished feminine. And it's odd and interesting to me that at this time of my life, when I have completed the the intensity of hands-on mothering, you know, after our kids leave home, that it was the Madonna who came and scooped me up. And I was on a, an interview with a fellow a while back who said, you know, that Mary picked him, that Madonna picked him. And why does she do that with people who are not in the church? Why, you know, what, why would that happen? And I said, the only thing I can think is that there's a certain odd symmetrical healing to having been parted from her so early because of the situation in the church and to be scooped back up and that wound be healed by her. All these other faces of the mother, goddess of the feminine were easy to relate to because they had not wounded me and over all those years. And I love all of them and they're fabulous and they're still with me. But for the Madonna to be the one who now shows up, is like full circle. Full circle. The hero's journey. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Well, this has been such 
such deep and yummy conversation. Thank, Thank you. you so much for joining all of us today. Oh, it's just been my absolute pleasure. Thank and we you wish so you much. so well Thank on your you. continued journey. Thank you. For more information, visit our website, boomgoddessradio.com, and follow us on Facebook, Boom Goddess. We'd love to hear from you. Your interest powers our programs.